0: you're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, let's start um Good morning, everyone. I am Sarah Pantuliano. I'm one of the two acting executive directors here at TODI, and I'm really delighted to welcome you all to such an important debate today. It's a critical discussion on how we make sure that we re- can really take gender responsive social protection to Another level. ODI has been at the forefront of this agenda for more than 10 years. We've published a lot of really seminal work on this. And we've also been convening debates, you know, such as today. We have convened debates, you know, in New York around the CSW63, the Committee on the Status of Women, and this is when actually we have been able to, you know, get to some agreed conclusions on how to ensure that we can have, you know, improved access to social prot- protection programs for women and girls. But we need to now move to making sure that these agreements are turned into action, that they become tangible, that they become concrete. And that's very much the focus of today. We're opening with this you know, uh, public debate, but we'll move into a workshop, you know, so that at the end of the day, we can really come out with a clear roadmap with some concrete steps both for the short and the long term or how we can really make sure that you know we can turn these commitments into something real Um, and this is all the more critical as you know jobs change in nature as you know we we see the impact of digitalization you know we see how the gig economy is transforming um, work and we need to really reflect on how you know the future of work, the way in which work is is changing, you know, what implications is gonna have, particularly for women, what this new phase is gonna be and how we can adjust quickly to that there is clearly a very you know strong you know vibrant debate on universal social protection and a lot of um, support I would say at the global level for that but a, a less so domestically and so it's also important today that we reflect and we think about how to navigate the politics that, you know make some of the advancement towards these commitments more uh, more difficult and so we're really delighted to have been able to gather you know together a Varied audience, but also a varied panel with you know, um, colleagues bringing valuable insights from different sectors, different experience from you know, the trade unions to domestic workers' federation, of course, the World Bank and DFID. Um, we tried to bring employers at the table too, but struggled a bit more <laughs> with that. But without further ado, let me hand over to Francesca Bastagli, who is the head of our equity and social uh, policy program, who will chair today's debate. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, Francesca. Thank
1: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you all all of you in the room uh, for joining us this morning and those of you that are online. I know there's quite a a number of you following us online. Um, So why are we, ODI and the UK's Department for International Development, convening this this event today and a workshop that is taking place later today? Um, We really are at an important um, crossroads in some way. I mean, on the one hand, social protection is increasingly recognized as one of the primary instruments governments have at their disposal in moving ahead with the social, social, um, sustainable development goals. Um, The SDGs include targets that are specific to social protection um, and specifically in relation to, of course, eradicating poverty in tackling inequality and and meeting gender uh, equality um, objectives. And it's not just the 2030 agenda for sustainable development, of course, Other recent processes um, emphasize the role of social protection, uh, specifically in relation to meeting um, goals around gender equality and women's empowerment. So importantly, of course, this year's Commission on the Status uh, of Women um, on the topic of social protection and links to public services and infrastructure, as part of that process, of course, reached uh, clear um, agreements, uh, agreed conclusions, and commitments moving forward. At the same time, um, despite these processes and increases in many countries in social protection schemes being adopted, the reality is that we are facing um, pushback, um, and social protection is under pressure in in many countries worldwide. Um, as a result of a number of both political and and, and wider developments. um, And we're seeing, of course, pressures to cut uh, spending on social protection, to to make adjustments that, in fact, restrict um, social protection provision. So we really are, in some sense, facing uh, a a tension between, on the one hand, uh, quite a historic opportunity to move ahead and make progress in uh, strengthening social protection and making it more gender responsive on the one hand, while at the same time some strong pushbacks, uh, including important cuts in social protection that disproportionately affect women and girls, uh, and or that specifically um, target the services that, that, that you know, benefit women and girls. So in this context, it's particularly important and timely that we meet today um, to discuss this issue. Um, I think that failure to, you know, to acknowledge these, these um, developments and to agree on an action plan moving forward means that we will miss an important opportunity. Uh, and I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome four distinguished speakers to help us to sort of navigate some of the issues we are, we are currently facing in this area. Um, first of all, Anoush Anush Abbasanian, World Bank's practice manager uh, in social protection. Rachel Glenister, uh, chief economist at the Department for International Development. Chidi King, director of the Equality Department of the International Trade Union Confederation. And Elizabeth Tang, general secretary of the International Domestic Worker Federation. Now, um, what we're going to do is we uh, are going to, first of all, listen to a message that Michelle Bachelet sent as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. She couldn't, unfortunately, be with us today, but has a message for us. So we will listen to her remarks, first of all. Uh, and then I'll hand over to our four speakers who will initially um, provide a sort of short opening statement. Of a, five five minutes or so each, before then taking questions from the audience, both in the room and online. So just a brief reminder also for those of you that are following us online to please submit your questions because we will be um, looking through those as well. But first of all, if I can ask my colleagues to please move to the video message. Thank you.
2: I'm very sorry that I can't be at this meeting to benefit from your experience and expertise in the many interlinkages between better social protection and greater effective empowerment of women and girls. These are both very fundamental human rights issues, core to my mandate and close to my heart. Universal social protection measures are powerful levers to reduce poverty, promote inclusion, and establish societies that are more equal. They are a key element to advance the Sustainable Development Goals. And their contributions are particularly clear in promoting equality for women and girls. I want to emphasize this point by decreasing the obstacles that weigh so heavily on the shoulders of women around the world. The work you do as experts in social protection policies help tremendously to advance women's human rights. Women bear a disproportionate burden of unpaid care work. They are more likely than men to be employed in the informal sector, in poorly paid and precarious jobs. This limits their access to social insurance benefits, such as unemployment insurance or pensions. Currently, an estimated 740 million women work in the informal economy in low-income countries. 92% of women are employed informally, compared with 87.5% of men. Even where women are relatively well covered, their retirement benefits tend to be lower than men. In the European Union, for example, women's pensions are on average 40% lower than men's are. So we need retirement benefits to take into account women's unequal burden of unpaid care work, including years spent raising children and caring for elderly parents, which may have prevented them from making equal contributions. Measures to advance universal healthcare also have powerful benefits for women in this context, alleviating the cost and perhaps some of the weight of the work they do in caring for others. Steps like this are valuable, but for maximum impact in ending generations of harmful and discriminatory practices, we need them to be joined up in comprehensive approaches which work in synergy across the spectrum of government action. Health insurance programs needs to include access to sexual and reproductive health services and information so that women, girls and LGBTI people are able to make autonomous choices about their bodies, their sexuality and their lives. We need affordable childcare and paid parental leave to support equal access to work. We need education systems to confront and push back against harmful gender stereotypes. We need social security systems to include non-contributory schemes in order to support young people in their search for a decent job and help them unlock their full potential. And we need all these measures and more to be drawn up, implemented, and evaluated with the meaningful participation of women, girls, and LGTBI community from every kind of background. That is what empowerment means genuine inclusion and co-design of equal and sustainable societies. And all this is feasible. ILO estimates that systems which include maternity benefits for all new mothers, allowances for all children, benefits for all persons with severe disabilities, and universal old age pensions cost an average of just 1.6% of GDP. Even the poorest countries can afford universal social protection systems, but it takes political will. Today, we are at a challenging moment in the history of women's rights movement. After decades of progress, strong headwinds are pushing women back. 25 years ago, the Beijing Declaration and Plan for Action outlined concrete actions to ensure increased and equal access to social security for women. So, we need to live up to those commitments. We need to keep pushing to advance women's well being, their dignity, their autonomy, and their rights. So thank you so much for the work you do to advance these goals, and great success in your activity.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, I think those are that's a very inspiring message. Um, outlines a number of issues I'm sure we'll be touching upon. <laughs> With, the, with our speakers, but also is, is, is very inspiring indeed. So uh, without further ado, can I ask the speakers, we'll start with Elizabeth, um, for you, for your initially opening remarks around the role of social protection in, in promoting women's uh, and girls' empowerment and some of the challenges, but opportunities also that we face moving forward. Okay.
3: Uh thank you. Uh, my organization is uh, relatively uh, a young organization. We were formed uh, 6 years ago, uh, 2013. Uh, it's a global federation of domestic workers and uh, by now we have uh, 71 affiliated organizations in uh, 59 countries uh, representing more than half a million domestic workers. And uh, uh uh, since the beginning, for a long time, uh, we have not thought very much about social protections since uh, they are basically denied uh, uh, to domestic workers. Um, many uh, people still don't know, even their employer, do not know that they are employing workers. So they have no uh, idea that uh, they are employers and have uh, responsibility and uh, and uh, roles as employers. So when uh, uh, they are asked to pay even the minimum wage to domestic workers, you know they are, they are shocked. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, a key challenge to begin with when we uh, demand a uh, fight for social protection for domestic workers. They also also explain that uh, why uh, in a lot of countries, uh, domestic workers basically, Uh, do not have uh, basic legal rights protections on their labor rights, on social protections such as minimum wage, maternity leave, uh, sick leave allowance, and and, uh, retirement uh, benefit. Um, And uh, and of course, uh, added uh, to this uh, is the challenge faced by domestic workers uh, if they are migrants. Uh, in many countries where domestic workers predominantly are migrants or ethnic minorities uh, people in general uh, exclude them from from the benefits which are accorded to their local citizens in you know, just because they are they are migrants or they don't belong uh, here and um and uh, you know all these uh, 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 also have uh, compounded the uh, uh, there's the result that a lot of domestic workers themselves also tend to think that they don't deserve this. Uh, you know because everybody is telling that you know you are only a domestic worker and you are not uh, other workers so uh, you know you should not be asking this. But this this is change. Uh, since our formation in 2013 we have been uh, struggling and campaigning very hard to tell people and let people know uh, we are domestic workers just like any other workers. So if uh, there is uh, maternity benefits for a teacher, there should be maternity leave for domestic workers. And uh, thanks to the uh, adoption of the Convention, uh, the International Convention 189 uh, on Decent Work for Domestic Workers, that uh, you know we have used as, a, as our tool. Uh, When we campaign and when we talk to government, when we talk to our employers, everyone, you know that we are workers and should be uh, accorded the same uh, social protection labor rights as any other workers. And we have uh, achieved uh, quite a lot of progress. Uh, uh, Until now, uh, there are 29 countries in the world which have uh, uh, ratified the Convention 189, uh, the last one uh, being Sweden. Uh, so that is uh, an encouraging sign, and more governments are also uh, considering it. And uh, in uh, 2016, uh, we, together with the ITUC, has surveyed uh, uh, the countries in the world, and we found that uh, uh, since the adoption of the convention, uh, about 50 have also uh, enacted some legislation or policy or regulations to improve the the labor rights, uh, minimum wage, uh, holidays, uh, rest days, for domestic workers. Uh, and in the last few years, we have also seen uh, uh, more and more positive uh, steps being taken by governments, even in those countries which uh, you know, have uh, never uh, given domestic workers any rights and make uh, organizing association impossible, uh, such as uh, in Qatar. Uh, in 2017 uh, just 2 years ago uh, domestic workers law was adopted uh, and in the, uh, uh, around the same year uh, it also happened in Kuwait uh, in uh, in Bahrain so uh, even these um, uh, middle east countries which uh, traditionally don't uh, treat domestic workers as even as human beings you know have started to to change and at this time, uh, Malaysia and Macau are also doing consultation on the possibility of uh, uh, making a domestic workers law. Uh, because until now, there is nothing there for, for domestic workers. So there are positive signs. And, and on social protections, uh, uh, we see that this is very important for domestic workers, because uh, even though uh, uh, we, we are not uh, recognized in many places, but we are many. You know, we are uh, 67 million in the world, uh, at least, and we comprise of 4% of labor force in the world. So uh, this is very significant, especially for women uh, in, uh, in, in our part of the world, uh, uh, Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America, uh, in, uh, and Caribbean. Uh, and. Um, And some of our uh, members uh, have uh, developed uh, very uh, creative uh, uh, approaches uh, to get uh, social protections uh, from the government. Uh, To start with, uh, uh, I think as long as uh, um, uh, four or five years ago, our affiliate, the Self-Employment Association in India, have uh, decided to approach uh, to the state level governments. And, uh, and enable the, the welfare boards, uh, which uh, exist in some states, uh, to extend the coverage uh, to, domest- to include domestic workers so that they get uh, some uh, uh, sickness benefits and also uh, uh, school fees uh, benefits, allowance for the, for the kids. Uh, and in Argentina, uh, our, our affiliates, well, which is called OPA, uh, has cooperated with the government to uh, register social uh, security scheme, uh, also uh, including the migrants. Uh, and, and without uh, the trade unions uh, of domestic workers, it will be very hard for government and other bodies to, to reach out to them. And, uh, and just uh, one, uh, last month, uh, in South Africa, uh, the health and safety law uh, is extended to cover domestic workers. Uh, after you know many years of, of struggles uh, by our affiliates, the South African Alliance Services uh, Domestic Workers Union there and and currently uh, the um one uh, very uh, exciting um uh, uh, progress is uh, being witnessed in Mexico uh, just on uh, March 30th Uh, the Mexican Institute of Social Security has cooperated with the Domestic Workers Union in uh, in Mexico uh, to implement an 18-month pilot project to register domestic workers into the social security system. Uh, Even though this system has existed uh, for many, many years, but it is uh, uh, voluntary when it comes to informal workers. Uh, and the result was a uh, very very few informal workers uh, you know for men for the reason i think francesca has thought about uh, uh, have not uh, registered. registered. yeah but uh, now the government has decided uh, to 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 launch the pilot project uh, to involve the the trade unions uh, to in the implementation and uh, and I heard uh, uh, yesterday uh, that since uh, April 1st already 10,000 domestic workers have registered into the system uh, so we have uh, 18 months to, to run to uh, to show and prove to the government that uh, with uh, proper uh, awareness raising and and also proper uh, uh, activities it is possible uh, to to uh, Enroll uh, domestic workers. Uh, uh, we are willing to be covered and and uh, uh, to enjoy this benefit. Uh, so uh, you know there there are um, uh, successes, even though there are not many. But uh, what we want to to show and tell the government that uh, it is possible, uh, and it is important uh, to include everyone. Uh, that uh, uh, no one should uh, be left behind and. And it will not happen automatically, uh, but with uh, uh, political view and also uh, appropriate uh, approaches.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks very much for, for speaking and, and sharing with us um, the, the you know case of a very specific sector that is a large and important one, particularly relevant and important, to of course, to women and women workers. Um, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of the examples you, you've yeah. talked to us about. Um, Anoush, can I ask you to deliver your statement.
4: OK. Uh, I'm uh, from the World Bank, so obviously uh, what you're going to hear is the World Bank's uh, um, what we do about um, uh, uh, inequalities. And uh, coming from the World Bank, you wouldn't be surprised that I started that uh the reducing uh, gender inequality and this persist- persisting gap between men and women is critical, first of all, for economic growth. And that's one aspect that we need to also uh, look at, at how the social protection contributes to it. And in uh, 2018, we studied um, in 141 countries, we looked at the high cost of gender inequality in earnings, for example. And there is an estimate that um, the loss of global wealth uh, uh, due to the inequality in earnings is about 163 globally. That's an enormous amount that actually, equally, all members of society could have benefited if we have done something about it. Uh, More recently, in CSW, whoever was there, we actually launched a report. Um, The World Bank launched a report that uh, was about women, business, and law. Uh, I guess you, you, many of you may have seen it, uh, which also found that despite the pro, all the progress that we have made in the world in the past decade, um, uh, women are still only accorded seventy-five percent of legal rights of the, that of men, and many of these issues also linked to uh, domestic workers, informal workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, female uh, uh, people, uh, I mean. 75% gap is quite large. Then we also looked at the re- more recently at the, uh, female uh, uh, businesses and female uh, businesses in Africa in particular. And there again, the gap is enormous. And the report, uh, it was uh, published more recently, uh, uh, revealed that the, the, the women entrepreneurs generally operate in low productivity sectors but also have a lower starting point, both in terms of human and financial capital, face legal discrimination, and uh, because they have much larger, disproportionately larger household responsibilities, they act, uh, that affects their strategic uh, and business decision making. So, so there are all these underlying factors. Um, uh, uh, When we thought about it and we thought about World Bank's gender equality strategy, um, uh, this evidence has informed us and and we're focusing on specific areas where we think in these four areas, if we make progress, that will actually uh, 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 move the needle. Um, on the gender inequality. first is about uh, human capital and human endowment. And you know, as you know, we recently have launched this human capital project where it focuses on, uh, uh, specifically on improving human capital. And um, second area where we, our strategy is focusing is to actually remove constraints to, to more and better jobs. And uh, and that is uh, female labor for participation, but also occupational segregation, and uh, safety at work, and, uh, and many other aspects that also uh, we spoke about. And a third area is also removing the barriers to to the ownership of the assets, be that the productive assets, land, or, or access to finance, which is extremely important in our view. And finally, the, the fourth pillar is about enhancing women's voice and, and agency, and uh, engaging men, and starting with boys, uh, because this is the area where we need to involve them to be able to make any change in social norms and uh, other gender aspects like gender roles and and violence so these are very important global strategy for pillars and each of the sectors um, uh, are um, developing and are in the process of developing and social protection we just finished developing our own specific strategy on how we're going to go about these four pillars and in social protection uh, we can contribute to all of these um, but um, i would mention uh, a few first of all the overall system has to be coherent mm-hmm. the programs and policies and programs has to have to work together as a one system and cover all all these uh, underlying risks and vulnerabilities and, and specific to the country obviously you have to look at the the, the that particular country and what 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 are specific uh, vulnerabilities in that country and what are the legal and other issues in this country. But then uh, looking at the social assistance, for example, uh, looking at uh, uh, elements of the productive inclusion that address the the barriers to productive employment uh, of the female members of the household and uh, also focus on developing of these human capital are important aspects that the social assistant can actually target specifically. Um, uh, social insurance can also be very specific in how to address the women' disadvantages, be that informality, how to actually include informal workers in the, in the uh, current schemes or, or, or develop new schemes for them. Um, uh, how do we account for labor market interruption when they go on maternity? Uh, but also a longer life expectancy for a female for, for for female participants in the in the uh, schemes. Uh, another aspect that is very specific uh, to, to social insurance is uh, survivor pensions, for example, which are critical for preventing um, uh, uh, female uh, elderly female poverty. So. Um, on the on the labor market policies I think it's very important not only look at the occupational segregation and female entrepreneurship etc but some of the aspects that may be outside of social protection for example the safe or the safety it may be a transport sector which needs to be looked at to actually have safe transportation or cost of transportation, but also from the social protection perspective have look at the uh, 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 affordable child care and uh, at age care because as, uh, as, as, as we know the disproportionately female uh, members of the household tend to actually take care of older members of the household so this is very important. And finally there are several aspects that social protection, and we are ac- very actively looking at it and uh, trying to uh, design our project in a way that uh, actually address this issue, is the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the implementation. You can have the most beautiful uh, policies and programs, but if they are poorly implemented, it's really important. Uh, uh, they actually may hamper overall development. So. Looking at, for example, the identification, because many of the female members of the household are those undocumented, they don't have identity cards, they actually cannot even go register. Even if you have the most beautiful social protection uh, system and program in the country, if they don't have that identification, they're not going to have access to it. So starting from the basics is extremely important. Or also access to payment and bank accounts. So if you actually make uh, uh, social protection payments, uh, digitize, and and you actually have, I don't know, automatically open a bank bank account for the recipient of a social protection benefit, they actually already w- would be able to cover a lot of women if you have a specific target, a specifically targeted program. So. Uh, who who then have uh, 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 access to finance, yeah, uh, through that. So I think these are very important things, and um, uh, so we we actually now look at uh, every single project in the World Bank that goes to the board from the gender in, uh, lens, um, uh, looking at uh, whether it's the gender responsive and, 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 and even gender tag, which means that you have to make specific analysis for this country, what are the barriers to, to all uh, what I have just described and how your project is addressing. So I'm glad to report that that um, in the social protection portfolio we have 93% of all our operations last year were gender response, gender informed and about 60% are now gender Responsive and 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 attacked as the gender responsive project. So and we are very happy to do it with partnerships with DFID and and now also Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and Australia joining specific trust fund that actually supports looking at the social protection programs and policies that are their gender responsive.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Anoush, for outlining the World Bank's uh, processes um, and and focus areas of focus on this theme. Rachel, I'll hand over to you. Great, Thanks.
5: Thanks. Um, so, I'm not going to talk about differ too much now, um, uh, partly because in convening this, we we want to raise questions and get ideas, and so you know, talking about what we've done. Um, maybe is, is, you know, I'm gonna focus more on kind of generating maybe some new new thoughts and try and get <coughs> you thinking of it. Um, as I was preparing for this, um, I was thinking, you know, what do I know about, about um, gender and, and social protection? And initially I thought not, I didn't have too much to say. And then over the weekend, it sort of a various number of things started started coming together into, I think, a, a coherent question. And it all goes back to um, when I was a teenager, I read a, po- a book which had a very powerful impact on me called Small Expectations, I don't know, uh, uh, by Leah Cohen. And it, um, I really recommend you read it. It made the very powerful argument that the feminist uh, movement had focused... A lot on young women girls young women and you know women trying to work while having kids and that end of their age spectrum and we had completely lost sight of older women Mm
6: -hmm.
5: and that actually it was older women who faced so much more disadvantage and I think unfortunately that while that book was written a long time ago that is still the case now Um, and she was writing about Canada and the fact, the horrible scandals in old age homes um, and arguing that the fact that you know, long-term care is an issue that is, that is, you know doesn't get enough attention that you get such horrible scandals in, in, uh, you know, in the long-term care industry. It was not a coincidence That most of the women in that system, most of the people in that system were women. And so drawing a very explicit feminist uh, viewpoint on on that neglect. And then if I turn to development, I was shocked many years ago reading a paper about witch killings in Tanzania. And you think, well, what's the connection between Canadian um, old age care? And and witch killings in Tanzania. And actually, it's exactly the same issue. Um, So, you know, this was this is a shocking paper, but I think very rigorously grounded, which shows that in times of extreme weather events, you see an increase in witch killings. And of course, witches over the history have been single, vulnerable elderly women. Right? Exactly the women who are in those care homes in Canada, and you see a doubling of witch killings when there, is, when there is extreme weather and you can even trace back people have now done it I mean you know you think that that's shocking in, you know, in this far-off land in Tanzania. Well it was not that long ago that that was happening in Europe too and the US. The Salem witch trials happened in years of extreme weather because Older women are the expendable part of society when there is not enough food to go around. You see how this is linking to social protection. Social protection for older women is literally a lifeline. So I just now when I think of what we work on in social protection, I think it's really, you know, a lot of conditional cash transfers about young women who are having um, kids and getting them in school. And all of that is very important. But I worry that we have neglected this really vulnerable part of the population. Um, and I think that's an explicit, the elder the elder perspective, and you talked a bit about it, is, is explicitly a gender issue in a way that I don't think we always think about. Um, The third piece of evidence that linked in my mind on this is a very interesting paper coming out of Indonesia which looked at a social protection system as sort of traditionally organized that looked, that assessed people's levels of poverty using data uh, and targeting social protection in that way. And then an alternative approach which was to ask communities who they thought was vulnerable and in need of social protection locally. And the really interesting finding between the two, the the one group that the communities highlighted that the data didn't was elderly widowed (coughs) women. And I think one way of understanding that is that those communities understood that there was a Version of neglect and vulnerability that was in addition to and was not always being captured by simply looking at assets. So, in our, you know, I'm a very data driven person. If anyone knows my background, I'm an economist. But I also think that in doing that, we have to recognize that there may be vulnerabilities of that particular group of people that we are not always picking up. uh, And we need to make sure that we're setting up our systems in a way that explicitly takes that group into account because they are literally the people who there is no one to speak up for. In Tanzania, if you had a son in the community, you were less likely to die in a witch killing. But those without sons in the community literally had no one to speak up with and literally got killed when food was scarce. So wanted to throw that out there as a thought-provoking um, thing to maybe we can dus- discuss about what kind of the implications of it are. but um, you know, as I thought about this topic, this was the group that I feel uh, that we need to be pay particular attention to and think of it as age as a feminist issue.
1: Thank you, Rachel, yeah, for flagging particularly particular this one area of, of neglect in particular, for sure, which I'm sure resonates with a lot of people in the room. Chidi, um, I hang over, hand over to
7: you.
8: Thank you. Um, thank you, Francesca, and good morning, everybody. Um, the advantage of being the final speaker on a panel is always that you can, you know, sort of rely on the fact that um, most of what you might have said may already have been covered and new thoughts may have come into your head, picking up on what... Um, Some of the previous speakers um, have said, so forgive me if there's a bit of repetition um, in what I say now. I should start probably by explaining a little bit of who we are in the International Trade Union Confederation. So we are the global organization of trade union bodies all around the world. Um, We have members in over 300 countries, and we bring together about 180 million um, workers, which is still in a a drop in the ocean if you think about – Um, the world's working population, Um, but it's growing. Um, Contrary to popular perception at the moment, trade union membership is actually rising in many parts of the world, fueled um, to a large degree by membership of women, it has to be said. We bring together around um, 70 million um, women workers, both working in the formal and the informal economies, and I think it's important to give um, a little bit um, of that background. I think it's also important to stress that we are... um, part of labor market institutions and very heavily regulated in law, so we have legal obligations um, as trade unions, we have to have in place democratic structures through which our members um, can have a voice, can operate, and through those structures we also engage in direct bargaining with employers, very important um, as I'll explain further when it comes to the issue of social protection. Um, particularly, but not only, employer-provided parts of social protection schemes. But we also engage um, often with employers who are known as the other half of the social partnership, if you like, um, in policy dialogue with governments. Again, also extremely important when we're talking um, about social protection systems and the role of workers and their organisations in relation to social protection, and particularly putting a gender focus, if you like, on the issue of social, of social protection. Um, I was really pleased to hear um, just um, the challenge, if you like, to us all to look at the issue, um, not just through a gender lens, as we're often fond of saying, but recognising the fact that women are not this unique, one-sided, one-dimensional um, you know, apparition that we come in many different forms, many different backgrounds. Of course, age being um, certainly something that needs to be taken into account when we're talking about building gender responsive social protection systems, but also issues such as um, racialization of, of peoples and um, how we treat um, minority ethnic communities in the design of these systems. And other risks, in fact, because this is what these are. These are risks that arise from structural um, issues in our labor markets, in our design of social protection systems, which result in discrimination and exclusion. And if we don't actually take this, um, what practitioners generally call intersectional issues into account, um, when we're thinking about building more gender responsive, inclusive systems, then we're bound, we're doomed to failure, um, in a sense. so from the trade union perspective, what do we see now as some of the key challenges that need to be addressed if we're really um, going to gender, if you like, our social protection systems and recognize their um, intrinsic um, value um, as a driver of gender equality in women's perception. I think one of the challenges um, has already been mentioned, um, both by the High Commissioner but certainly by um, other panelists, which is the fact that we're moving increasingly to individualization of social protection. And for trade unions, of course, being collective-based organizations, this is of huge concern. When you individualize social protections, and of course we're seeing domestic workers increasingly feeling the gaps, in, uh, in terms of um, the deficits in collective social protection systems, then the cracks widen. And the cracks widen especially for those groups who tend to be already disenfranchised, who already tend to be um, around the margins, who already tend to be experiencing um, exclusion. Um, And again, the domestic workers situation puts that very starkly because, as I say, they're increasingly filling the gaps in deficits in collective systems, but the domestic workers themselves are experiencing um, great difficulty in accessing social protection. So they fill the gaps, and yet they themselves cannot access um, occupational health and injury compensation, they cannot access um, unemployment insurance, very often cannot access maternity protection systems. You can't have um, one without the other. If you're going to have decent conditions for um, the largely female workforce providing um, domestic um, or in the home social protection, if I can put it that way, then you have to have the backup with a collective system, with robust collective systems um, that take into account um, everyone. when we're talking about gender components or gender dimensions of social protection systems, I wouldn't talk so much about the issues related to women's um, reproductive roles, because those are, I think, increasingly well understood. The issue around unpaid care, the issue around even what we've seen here, austerity measures cutting back on um, you know, access to care services, access to health care, et cetera. I want to look at things around um, For example, occupational health and safety, which I think, again, a couple of speakers have already um, talked about. Very often, these systems are designed, and that's a key part of social protection for women, but again, without taking that gender dimension um, into account. Risks such as gender-based violence, for example, that many women um, experience in the workforce and often um, ends up excluding them from the workforce for um, significant periods of time. Um, Sometimes it's not taken into account in in the design of either employer-provided systems or the more um, state-based systems, if you like. Issues such as, um, you know, protective equipment um, specifically designed to women, risks that are different for women in relation to cancer and other such occupational diseases are often not taken into account. And these are important not just in terms of ensuring that the risk is cushioned um, for women workers, but of course in terms of prevention. Because if, you, if you're more alive to the cost of these issues socially and financially, then the likelihood of taking better protection and prevention measures um, increases. I know I'm probably at the end um, or coming to the end of my time, so perhaps I can wrap up again by plea that when we're talking um, about um, social protection systems, that the design really has to be looking at the collective base of social protection. It is a public good. It's relevant to all of us. We're in a at a time when the world seems to be shifting quite dramatically um, under our feet. The world of work, of course, is no exception to that. It's changing dramatically. The fact that work is becoming more precarious, the fact that um, very often these days it's hard to identify an employer who um, would be responsible for helping in the employer provided, or responsible full stop, for providing um, contributions to social um, protection schemes means that we're in fact sitting on something of a time bomb with huge numbers of workers who will have no access to social protection. At least collectively, they will have to find their own individual types of social protection, and we've already heard about the difficulties and the increased risks involved in that. So I think on that, I'll, I'll stop. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chidi. And if I may, I'll, I'll come back to you straight away with a with a related question that then you know we'll come others can pick up on as well, and that is to do with with the type of social protection, and partly it's linked to its its financing as well. So if we In part, some of the um, barriers to uh, extending social protection to to women, and particularly certain groups of workers, have been tackled through the extension of of tax finance, so non-contributory social protection. We see this in a large number of countries, an expansion over the years of social assistance type um, social protection, as I say, either tax or donor financed, but that does not involve the employer or employee, uh, and indeed, you know, the idea of increasingly delinking eligibility for social protection um, from employment status is seen as a way of um, as a way forward in ex- not just in extending coverage, but also sort of t- potentially tackling adequacy problems. But I'd like to come back to you on this. I mean, and indeed, some institutions are actually advocating for this, and some research, academics that we just, you know. Forget about establishing or strengthening the contributory angle. Let's just move to a fully tax-financed or social assistance-based um, uh, system. But so you've you you know you you've mentioned issues of sort of of, of um, the of the collective of the system, uh, the different players involved. I'd just like to hear you know comment or reflection on is that the way forward, or, or just how far can we get if we go down that route. Yes. And what are the risks? <laughs> <Do> you- <laughs> <laughs>
8: okay. Well, I think it sounds attractive, doesn't it? It's like, okay, let's just uncouple this from, given that the, work, the, the world of work is becoming, and this is not an inevitability, by the way, um, there are things that we can do about it, but that the world of work at the moment seems to be becoming more informal, more precarious, um, delinking um, the issue of social protection completely from you know, employment status or even employment, um, full stop. Um, and it can be seen as an attractive op- um, argument. And indeed, we're seeing discussions around universal basic incomes that play into that. Um, I would say that, yes, there are benefits to the non-contributory um, road of social protection, but there are also um, quite considerable um, risks. And um, quite a lot of those have been played out in the debate over um, universal basic incomes. Um, in fact, so I wouldn't dive um, too much into that. But the question goes to the sustainability um, of, of such questions. I mean, if you're saying that social protection um, systems um, come totally from non-contributions through employment, through work, then the question inevitably arises, well, how are you going to finance um, those social protection systems? Uh, it's just, you, you just can't really um, square that circle. And I like the fact that the High Commissioner did say, and as you know, she was very much involved in the design of social protection flaws. Um, the evidence is out there that these are eminently um, affordable. Social protection flaws, of course, look at both the contributory aspect and the non-contributory aspect. Of um, social protection schemes, so we have the tools, I and mean, it's not that we don't have the tools. I think a lot of it, as um, I think that the point was made by the High Commissioner and and others, um, a lot of it does come down to political choices and political will. Um, but you know, not to go too much into that. I think that I hope I've answered the the question from our perspective. Certainly, as a trade union organisation, that it's. It, it wouldn't solve the problem. In fact, it would create even more difficulties, both in the short and longer term, if we moved com- completely to um, non-contributory schemes. And when it comes to the issue of gender, I think, again, it would only as- exacerbate rather than reduce, um, notwithstanding the fact that a majority of the world's working women are indeed in the informal economy. The route there is to formalize informal economy, through provision of social protection and means of paying into social protection, rather than to say, let's move to completely um, non contributory. Um, Anush,
1: can I come to you on that as well? Sure. Because the World Bank, also in, in the WDR on jobs, I mean, has, of course, addressed this issue around the balance between contributory and non contributory. There's been a lot of work also around a UBI, and of course, the, the, the potential implications of a UBI from a gender equity or equality perspective, they're two. A lot of debate, including around feminists, around on the one hand the potential for, a sort of, for instance, universal basic income to free up choice opportunities for women. At the same time, the reality, and this is coming through in a lot of the evidence on either full UBIs or quasi UBIs, that shows that actually it tends to reinforce gendered <coughs> work patterns, where particularly in couples where women are secondary earners, UBI or UBI type. Um, Approach will will tends to lead to women to actually withdraw from the paid workforce or, re- or reduce work effort. <coughs> yeah, could could you comment on that a bit um, from the World Bank's perspective? Absolutely
4: yeah, right. We're just uh, going into final stages of publishing that book to which you have uh, contributed on the gender chapter. So you're better placed even than I to say something about it. But uh, this was the one of uh, so so this was one of the pieces of the work that actually contributed to our. Thinking about the future of the social protection and what would be the uh, ideal, so to speak, system for social protection. And uh, if you want to talk about ideal, the ideal system is when um, uh, each individual has access to social protection of the form of social protection that they need at that stage of their life. The child benefit, and you know, the uh, whatever types of support you can get for developing the uh, child human capital so that you prepare them for productive work, unemployment benefits you go, you name it. We go through the whole life cycle, and there is never an ideal balance because it's always going to be the combination of both the. Uh, contributory and non-contributory. It's just a matter of the how do you uh, uh, make sure that people have access to whatever the contributory or non-contributory at the time they they need it. And I think uh, that's the the very big challenge. Uh, uh, because right now only fifty percent, as we know, uh, have any access in the uh, globally. But if you look at the Poorest population, only fifty-five percent of population have access to social protection. So, from from our perspective, we are, we actually look at okay, we need a system, but if system is at the, and covering everyone, but if, if what you can afford is the um, the the lowest level where people are more desperate. It's also a legitimate uh, starting point, we argue. So, um, yeah, so I think it's a combination that we're looking. I wouldn't argue for the UBI right now, (laughs) just to be clear. Elizabeth, can I just come? Just to add that uh, we see the UBI different from universal social protection. These are two different things. So let's not mix these things, because in some people's mind, they're really mixed, and they're not.
1: Elizabeth, can I just come to you on this on, – related to this point um, and, some of the, again, the barriers or challenges we find in, in moving mm-hmm. towards universal social protection, including strengthening where possible sort of contributory and employer-based uh, social protection. What are the role of, of, of trade unions? And um, we see, again, co- in some – context quite contradicting trends on the one hand a weakening of worker representation organization and this being associated with a weakening of social protection in countries in others and in some sectors in particular actually very interesting movements um, and, and strengthening of these types of, of, of uh, initiatives what is what how important is this how much does it matter to, to promoting gender responsive social protection
3: uh, actually I think uh, uh, the the pilot or the ex, uh, experiments uh, uh, we are now uh, working uh, either with uh, the central government or the uh, the municipal governments uh, will provide a uh, lot of interesting uh, knowledge not just for domestic workers but for other uh, informal workers Uh and uh, uh, we are uh, promoting it, uh, basically uh, focusing on raising awareness uh, for domestic workers to no, not just to focus on uh, 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 their well-being right now and their possibility to uh, take care of their children, uh, the, uh, uh, the needs of the family, but also for themselves in, in, in the long run. Uh, So this is uh, a very important awareness raising process. Uh, But uh, at the same time, uh, uh, we are the one uh, uh, to push the government uh, to uh, take responsibility. Um, I I want to refer to the Mexican uh, examples I just talked about. Uh, actually, even though I have talked about the successes in in, in registering uh, 10,000 domestic workers uh, just in the last five months, but at the same time we face many challenges, especially uh, when the domestic workers are part-time domestic workers and they have uh, multiple employers, like, you know, some uh, work for three employers or four employers at a time. Uh, so how much each one should contribute and, uh, and actually most of these employers who employ domestic workers for only a day uh, four hours uh, in a week or eight hours in a week do not feel they are, uh, uh, they, they are responsible okay. for, for doing this. Uh, it's easier to convince the full-time employers or when the, when the domestic workers are living. And it's easier to convince those employers uh, to, to contribute into those schemes. But it takes so much effort. Uh, I, I, I hear from our our leaders in Mexico saying that it, it takes up so much of our energy and time uh, to, to raise awareness among the domestic workers so that they will demand their employers, but also to raise awareness uh, of the employers uh, that you are employers. You have to do what all the other employers are doing. Uh, but um, uh, we, uh, despite the success uh, now looking at the numbers, but uh, at the back of our mind we are also worried how sustainable it is uh, in the longer run because uh, the, the, the wages, even though uh, in Mexico there is a minimum wage. I mean, not to mention in many countries there is no minimum wage for domestic workers. Mm-hmm. So even in Mexico there is a minimum wage, but the rate is really low so we are talking about 100 us dollars in uh, in, in mexico city so uh, uh, in in the system is a contributory system by both employer and, and employers uh, we have succeeded to convince them to contribute but it is very very hard and we we also have this worry at the back of our mind you know how sustainable it is mm-hmm. uh, you know at this uh, at a certain point you know when uh, when when the when there is a, you know just a, a, a little bit uh, uh addition of economic need the domestic worker will certainly give up the mm-hmm. Contrib- mm-hmm. contribution yeah so um, but anyway we we, uh, we still try our best to participate in this pilot scheme because we also want to draw lessons uh, mm-hmm. yeah. for the, for the government uh, for ourselves you know what to find out the answers to your questions mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what really worked uh, for uh, low-income vulnerable sector workers like domestic workers
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you Um. I have time for one last question. A question to Rachel, uh, but also to others on the panel around the role of services. So um, we know that social protection is effective and, and, and can impact effectively women's and girls' outcomes if linked to adequate social service, well, wider, also basic services. Um, and this comes across also very clearly in, in the study of, for instance, cash transfers, where, in fact, if you don't also provide good quality mm-hmm. services. In reality, you might see quite weak. You might see an effect on, say, monetary poverty. But in terms of wider outcomes on girls and women, you, you may not see much. So services are essential. And we need to think of, of those as well mm-hmm. as part of social protection, or at a minimum, the links between social protection and service provision. Um, and and um, Michel Bachelet mentioned the um, access to sexual and reproductive health services. And, Rachel, I just wanted to come to you on, on this. So services are public services are under threat in many countries and at the same time um, are crucial I mean they're crucial in general to women's and, and girls outcomes but also if we want social protection to be effective, these services need to be in place and of good quality. So what, what do our priorities have to be I mean in, in moving forward? Um, and given the reality in, in a number of countries now where administrations are actually pushing back and, and pushing back also specifically on services that matter to women and girls, does this have to be part of our priority and what do we need to do or look out for?
5: Wait, a lot there. Um, I guess I would just start by saying I'm not quite as pessimistic as you implied in your question about social protection you know if you haven't got everything else right I mean in general when and I work in the poorest countries if you wait until everything is right you will never fix anything right I mean you you have to get going and actually the evidence is that if you start doing things like cash transfers even when you haven't fixed everything else um, you make progress on an amazing range of issues and And I think my lesson from a lot of the evidence is that women are more inventive than we might give them credit for. Um, So on sexual and reproductive health, providing young girls with information about who's most uh, likely to have HIV, they responded even though they're in a very vulnerable situation and you might think that you have to provide all sorts of services. They figured out a way around their constraints. Um, in work in Bangladesh, um, you know, we provided cash transfers to families who had um, uh, who had adolescent girls, all sorts of social pressure to get married early, you know, all sorts of, you know, whole range of complicated pressures on these on these communities. Twenty five percent reduction in early marriage rates. So I'm, you know, without doing anything else. So having said, so, you know, I'm slightly more optimistic about being able to do, you know, people being able to respond. If you give them money, they will, in often places, figure out a way to cope. Now, does that mean <laughs> I don't also worry about having the schools and the, and the health clinics? Obviously, that's really important. Um, and I think it's really, when there is pressure on the system, you have to think about prioritizing. and I think the overall mantra is you have to prioritize around the most marginalized. like that is the essence of leave no one behind. That's the essence of certainly, you know, if you're thinking about extreme poverty, this is where we have to prioritize. And that's one area that I think, where there might be some tension across some of this discussion um in terms of where I would put my priorities and I think it's really about thinking we I think we all have maybe different countries in our head when we have this discussion and I think it it is a question of thinking about the country and prioritizing on the country that you're focused on at any one point right so for me it's about the social protection and the you know in the Sierra Leone's of the world, uh, the Burkina Faso's, the other places where I've worked, is really about getting that very basic system in place. And I worry sometimes when people think, well to relieve the pressure on that social protection we need to, or on the health services or the education services, let's try and crowd in other financing and so they think about, well, let's do an insurance system. So you look in Kenya, they're thinking about how do we bring in health insurance so that we get other people paying for the system to relieve pressure. But then all the thinking goes into the health insurance system, which is going to be for the people in the formal sector,
7: Mm -hmm.
5: who are the people who who are least marginalized. Again, that's not... You know, I know the answer is maybe bring people into the formal sector, but in Burkina Faso, you are so far from that. You've got to be designing a system where you know that the vast majority of people are going to be in the informal sector for as long as we can think in terms of our horizon. So we need a system that works for them. So it's not just about... So for me, it's about getting those basic services, primary education, basic sexual and uh, and reproductive health rights, um, with some, social pro- some basic social protection in terms of cash transfers is got to be the first priority in the poorest countries in the world.
1: Thank you. Okay, all right. So I think we'll open up to the floor now. Um, there should be a microphone circulating. Is there a mic? If, can you just pass it to... I, can, I, sorry, can I ask you to briefly state um, your name and, and what organization uh, you're from, and then we'll take, uh, and whether you're addressing your question to anyone specifically, if uh, not, we okay. can then uh, we'll take two or three questions and then um, come back.
6: Myself, uh, uh I am coming from India, Self-Employed Women's Association, Seva, and also working with the Vigo so i am representing here as a partner of the vigo uh, uh, just i think uh, uh, thank you for your insights uh, cross cutting area because uh, in india 93% workforce is an uh, informal sector so how we can address the cross cutting area like a recognition and registration of the informal workers which is quite important if you are not recognized then how you will uh, demand for the social protection. So, uh, sector-specific is required to make up uh, some gap, like domestic worker, because we are part of the alliance of that. But I think worker lens is quite important when we are designing and implementing the things. And financing is the issue, but better to focus on the leakages, better to focus on the implementation, monitoring that can help us. And many times criteria set for the inclusion targeted mainly women are excluded. So like uh, for to get the uh, benefit, maternity benefit, we have the criteria that breast breastfeeding is the essential. How women has to prove that? That breastfeeding. Or new insurance scheme, we are happy that for the tertiary care we have the insurance scheme. But uh, in that scheme, prolapse you trust is not included. And just one question to all speakers because we found that because of the new technology and skill upgradation not done, so women are excluded. Women participation is decreasing because of the technology. So, in your experience, or what is how we we are doing the skill upgradation. But this one this is the important area because globalization technology is increasing and it's not easy to access for the women because for them their family is their priority. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
8: Hello. Is this on? Hi, my name is Amber Parks. I'm with Oxfam. Thanks for a really interesting panel discussion. Um, I wanted to pick up on the point about um, informal sector workers with unpaid care responsibilities, because we know that this later goes on to become a, a major source of inequality for women in later life as well, when we're thinking about pensions. that sort of thing but thinking specifically about the informal sector and i just wondered if the panel could share any examples of successful parental leave schemes that you've come across and the extent to which you've seen them targeting both men and women so that we're encouraging both mothers and fathers to be taking up care responsibilities because this is arguably one of the main factors for change as
5: well thank you
9: Hi, thank you. I'm Kate Horstead from Age International. Um, I was really pleased to hear um, Rachel and also others mentioning older women, um, because you're right, they often are invisible in policy and in data. Um, and it is re- they do face particular discrimination and particular vulnerabilities, and that is really important to recognize. Um, but I also think it's really important to capture the kind of the complexity Um, of older women's lives and like all women they they are sometimes vulnerable but also they are active contributors in many ways Um, and we actually carried out some research with ODI into older women's economic roles and found that they do they do continue to do significant amounts of unpaid care work and often often they are doing um paid work as well and, and in quite informal and precarious settings but they don't fit very neatly often into the categories that we talk about here like domestic workers sometimes it is domestic work but here often it is harder to categorise so I think something we really need to address is how we ensure that older women are protected both at the point when they are in need of care but also when they're um, carers themselves and working um so that yeah, there's, a, there's sort of more of a universality about it. Um, so it'd be great to hear if you had any thoughts on that. Thank you.
1: I think we'll take... Um, we can take two more, I think, then we'll we'll come
7: back. Hi, my name is uh, Laura Alfers from Women in Informal Employment, Globalising and Organising, and I, it was really a question for uh, Elizabeth and about spaces spaces for participation um, in the making of social protection policies and programs. Um, one of the issues we come up against is that quite often there we, we feel that there aren't actually spaces for those voices um, to come through. And I just wanted to know, whether that's your experience as well as uh, throughout your own network of IDWF um, and what potential you see to change that as well. Thanks. I
1: think one more and then we'll, we'll have another round.
7: After. Thank you very much. My name is Fatma Tassise and I work with UN Women. I just have many things on my lap so if you don't mind that I don't stand up. <laughs> Yes, um, I'm very glad to hear about the discussion on informal workers because I think it doesn't come out clearly uh, very easily. But when we look at the whole aspect of social protection, especially in Africa, and I'm thinking in many other developing countries, women in the informal sector has to show up. And often it's the area we don't discuss, it's the area, least area that probably we know what's best, what needs to be done. So discussing that in this forum and possibly coming up with ideas on what needs to be done, I think is really critical for the discussion of social protection. I'm also happy that you highlighted the issue of um, the Middle East. As you presented, actually that kept occurring to me that what is going on. And it's, it's very good to see that you're presenting it from an optimistic point of view for the countries that are actually uh, passing out some laws or allowing some association of domestic workers because I'm sure many of us have seen quite a number of examples of WhatsApp videos. Of course, you have a lot of doubts on them about what pe- women in developing countries that go to those countries actually face. And often it really bothers me not knowing what to do, but in bringing that discussion here and knowing that those countries are actually taking up some action, is really a bit of something that is pleasing. My final point is on the elderly uh, widows. Again, very good to, to highlight this group, and it brings me to the point that um, in such discussions, it's probably important for us to compartmentalize the women we are talking about because they, we need specific interventions for a particular group of women. And just when you compartmentalize them, it helps us to then identify what needs to be done so we don't have blanket interventions for all women. But it then reminds me what are we doing about we do was as well? What about the old? Um, the aged men. Possibly, they have already been into contributory schemes, and there's not much to be done. But it should be highlighted so that constantly we are not only focusing on the women, but we are providing evidence as to why we should be focusing only on women. Otherwise, we are losing the debate of gender aspects of social protection. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I think we let's let's have a round of responses. Chidi, will you you go first and? don't feel that you need to answer everything, but those that you, <laughs> yeah, that you have something lot. pressing <laughs> to say. Yeah. yeah, indeed.
8: I think I, probably I'll start by saying, because there's so much to say on this topic, that I will maybe just start by highlighting a briefing that the ITC has produced, which is available on our website, and we can certainly um, circulate the link, which is on this very issue, which covers many of the questions, I think, that have come up, including the the, the last question about um, what do we do about um, widows and social protection and the issue of survivors' pensions, etc., which is, again, another huge area of discrimination um, and of, in fact, poverty um, or gender-based, if you like, poverty that arises because of the lack of um, or the failure of social protection systems to take this issue into account, um, that we can talk about so many issues, such as um, you know, care credits to provide for the interruption um, of um, work um, by women. And this applies um, to women in the informal. We tend to think about it only as women working informal jobs. You know, What do you do when you leave your work to go and raise kids? But it's especially important, of course, as well for women in the informal economy who livelihoods depend on them being able to be at their workplace, at their market store, you know, at the home where they deliver domestic care. What happens when they then have to um, take time off to um, look after their children or indeed look after elderly or other dependent relatives. We see too often in marketplaces Um, around the world, um, women with babies in cardboard boxes under their market stalls, um, coming back to work maybe a week, two weeks after giving birth. This is, I think, in anybody's um, vision of the world, not acceptable, but this is the reality of many women working in the informal economy because of a failure of systems to take them into place. And um, I will maybe um, end um, my responses to this by coming back on two issues. The issue about... um, parental leave um, for women working um, in the informal economy. I have to say that I'm not uh, aware of any um, scaled-up systems that do this. I know that there are some attempts. Um, Elizabeth could talk, for example, about um, the the way I was just (laughs) going to talk about um, the domestic workers in the Dominican Republic and what the trade unions and domestic workers are doing together to try to enable this. But again, this is a very localized, um, small system. I could look at Uruguay, where there is a more comprehensive um, state system. And that's probably the best model that we have um, at the moment. which then takes me back to the question of, well, do we look at scale, or do we look at the smaller, more targeted interventions that can perhaps produce more immediate results, as you mm-hmm. talked about? And I should say, I'm from Sierra Leone. So I know the situation in my country very, very well. And of course, there is a case for the smaller, more targeted interventions. But there are also huge risks associated to that. And I think you, you kind of identified that is that we lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, there is no reason why a country like Sierra Leone cannot provide um, services related to um, public health care, related to public social care. As I say, it comes down to political choice, political choices that we make, which are not always down. I won't go further than that, but not always down to the individual country. But of course, they, they um, you know, operate in a, in a global economy and sometimes there are pressures um, about where they put their tax dollars, if I can put it that way. Um, these countries produce workforces that they're incapable of absorbing, that, you know, uh, but they're providing the workforce for perhaps more industrialized countries when it comes to healthcare and social protection, um, social services. We need to look at that. That in itself is unsustainable. So I think the, the danger that I would alert to in looking at those more targeted, smaller in- interventions is not losing sight of that bigger picture mm-hmm. and what needs to be done um, in relation to that and what is actually doable, feasible. Um, in relation to that.
1: Thank you, Rachel.
5: Um, yeah, I, so I was just going to talk about this issue of um, how we're, you know, we're talking about a very wide range of country um, concerns here. You know, Mexico, the US, UK, Sierra Leone, um, and and a sort of obvious response in in most of development is to say um well it all depends on the country which i think is you know absolutely right you've got to look at what the resources are what the needs are who's most vulnerable you know building a system that will hopefully endure over the long term and i agree there's a concern about building something that's just about short-term need um but i also but that can sometimes leave us in development of saying not saying anything and just saying it's all, you know, it's all got to be country specific. So I just want to throw out something which is h- hopefully useful for the afternoon session, which is something we've been working at in, D- in DFID, to think about country typology. <coughs> in other words, sort of what are a set of different kinds of, you know, countries that have this kind of situation or, you know, this kind of resources, this kind of problem, so that we can start saying something that's general but also (laughs) tailored to the needs of an individual country. Um, And for me, in this area, when we talk about informal, you know, formal versus informal is a huge dividing line, what percentage of your population are formal or versus informal is a huge dividing line in how you think about designing the right system. But within informal, I think there's huge differences there, right? Because some people are in informal in that they're really in an employment situation, but they're just not registered, like, you know, like many domestic workers. They are employed, and they clearly have an employer, and the employer just pretends that they're not an employer. Right? And then there are people who are doing a little bit of work on the side in their home who don't, you know, who don't have an employer other than, you know, the family, that's a much more informal system. And I think you have to think about how you design social protection in that context very, very differently. You know, the women who are working in agriculture, the women I work with in Bangladesh who are doing, you know, taking in a bit of tailoring um, or, you know, selling a little bit on the side, but they're not, you know, it, you can't, formalize them anytime soon so I would sort of suggest where that is the dominant situation or you know a Mexico case where there's a lot of people in the informal sector but it's a bit more of a formal informal sector and then an actual formal sector and sort of challenge us to think about those three different categories uh, and systems that work for countries that have different ratios of those three Groups of, of women, particularly. Thank you,
4: Anush. Sure. Um, I think many of the issues, uh, questions have been covered, and I wanted just to echo to what Rachel just said. This the informal sector is not homogeneous; it's very diverse, and it's, uh, and and diverse by different nature of work, but also in different countries, you would be surprised how different forms and shapes of the informal work one can uh, uh, see. Uh, And I don't think we have uh, good evidence um, of what has worked well. So I think that is one area that uh, we need to study still. We try to um, take a little bit of stock of what is going on in the world. And tomorrow we're going to be there will be a formal launch of the white paper about the uh, social protection in the uh, and future of work and i think that there is an in increasing risk of um and there will be some suggestions on how to uh, deal with these issues so stay tuned uh, for that but uh, we also the de- uh, decide uh, um uh, me agree that we need to bring this um Examples together to study uh, from each other. So, we will be uh, our next, uh, uh, for example, South South Learning Forum will be uh, that we convene every two, three years, will be about that. But there are some emerging um, good cases, I would say, uh, in, in all regions, from uh, uh, you know, and for all categories of informal sector. Um, uh, in Ghana, for example, we have seen them, uh, the informal sector pension scheme. Uh, while in South Africa, we see an informal sector skills development skill for younger population. So it's not only one uh, a part of the demographic spectrum. Also, we have to look at the continent. Um, uh, yeah, and so I think. Um, what we find though uh, makes a lot of differences. Uh, the uh, I I thought the good example is India where they have massively registered, uh, given people the IDs with Aadhaar, and then now are massively registering uh, for the bank accounts, and 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 there is a. Uh, um, also, uh, Central Provident Fund uh, uh, provide pension scheme for informal sector. That's the most massive uh, effort we have seen, and we're gonna try to study too, so we can share these experiences with uh, with each other. But I think my point is that we're still in a learning mode on this and how to uh, to 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 actually include. Uh, Informal sector workers in social protection, and not only include but also provide the tailored service that is actually for that particular group of the informal workers.
1: Thank you, Anush. So, Elizabeth, I come to you. There was a question specifically to you, Laura. Alphas asked around spaces for participation, so I'll I'll ask you to to come to that. But also an online a question that comes um, from the online system. Um, that I'll turn to you about references it says there are several references to political will what does this mean in practice um, and for example in the case of including domestic workers in Mexico what are the political factors that enable or constrain the expansion of social protection mm-hmm. I need uh, <laughs> <laughs> so another, another session, session. yeah, yeah if but you can but briefly address these two Questions, yes, and then we'll, yes. We'll come they to are very, rather. very
3: interesting. Uh, on on uh, participation, our experience is uh, we have to uh, be able to show that we represent. So we have uh, domestic workers uh, uh, with us and, and we really represent them and we are their voice. So uh, the, the, the main uh, work and objective of my organization is still organizing. To bring domestic workers who are scattered in all the individual homes to come together and to be able to have a voice uh, so that uh, uh, they, they know uh, what are at stake and, and they can talk to, to the government. Uh, but equally important is also to have uh, uh, partners uh, uh, to build alliances, uh, especially for, uh, for domestic workers because employers are, are everywhere. It's very important that uh, we have uh, good uh, alliances uh, with trade unions uh, you know who also uh, advocate and uh, fight for workers' rights. Uh, we also need to build alliances with a whole range of community groups because uh, in any one of them I can say you know, they are employers. So it's important to have their support, to have their understanding. Uh, and um, so that we can all speak uh, one voice to the government and that also uh, uh partly answer to the second questions so, you know what make the the political will of government mm-hmm. in Mexico uh, uh this uh, pilot uh, scheme uh did not come uh, you, you know uh, suddenly from the sky you know we uh, we have been working with the domestic workers uh for uh, since uh, the early uh, 90s so uh, so it's about 20 years uh, and uh, uh, so uh, in in the 2000s the government first agreed to extend uh, but voluntarily and that has uh, been there for for 20 years and it was only now that uh, the government agreed uh, to take more serious steps uh and uh, uh so uh not the push you know from from the domestic workers themselves and and uh and their uh uh airlines is is the key i must say uh but uh, of course uh, the uh uh the, the current government which is more sympathetic uh to uh informal workers voice uh, is also a uh, a very key uh, issue and i and uh, finally i also want to add that uh, about the need to have uh, uh, you know strong and good uh, partners is uh, also uh, in in mexico uh, 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 you have heard of the film uh, roma yes. mm-hmm. um, so in the um the, the, the film the social media the industry there's also a, a, a growing support of domestic mm-hmm. workers right and uh, and, and, and the award and the, and the wise uh, popular support of the film also play a role to, to push the government you know really uh, to do something yeah. so all these have uh, have worked together yes. uh, and I just want to, to stress you know we need to uh, have ourselves you know as a very strong organization uh, but then we also need to have good partners yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. So unfortunately, our time yeah. is up. I think we could have gone on discussing much longer, but I will ask our our panelists to just give us a final one or maximum two key action points that you think are the, the, the priority thing we need to do moving forward. And Anusha, I'll start. If you could start, and we'll just work our way back um, to me a final key or, or um, suggestion.
4: Yes. Um, Two final words. I think it's very important that we, the social protection services are accessible to women. And, and uh, uh, we looked at barriers to accessing these services and um, used the latest technological advancements to actually make these uh, services accessible, to, to the, give them IDs. Give them bank accounts, give them money, so so that you know that they feel included. Uh, otherwise, we're not gonna. Unless we do ma- I see massive, massive, uh, results in these areas, key basic areas. We're not gonna have the, the, the social protection for all, and there is, there always be somebody left behind. Thank you, Rachel.
5: Uh, So I I sort of did my practical picture in my last thing about, you know, think about designing things for these different kinds of, you know, um, countries, uh, and also, you know, keep that lens on the most marginalized um, who don't have a voice in in design. I
8: think I would look at big picture things. So... um, two or three things for us. First is decent work and the importance of decent work to um, universal social protection and the sustainability of those systems. And when I say decent work, I'm looking at the ILO's definition of decent work. And that's how we measure informality, actually, in the trade union movement. It's by access to those rights under the decent work pillars, which include Um, you know, productive employment, freely chosen. It includes um, having a voice and say at your workplace, whether you're an informal economy workplace or more formal economy workplace. It includes being able to participate in social dialogue with governments and employers, and it includes um, social protection. Tax justice, I would say, would be Mm -hmm. another key element to this. And we need to look at that again. I mean, I don't really like overusing the term gender lens, Mm -hmm. but we do need to put a gender lens on how we design um, tax policies, policies of taxation. And that goes to wider macroeconomic policy as well. So I could say more on that if we had more time, but uh, I'll just throw those into the mix. I...
3: Yeah, I, I just want to say uh, this is the time to invest in domestic workers. I started to organize uh, domestic workers in uh, uh, 1989. Uh, in the first uh, 12 years, uh, nobody asked me a question about what I was doing. Nobody was interested in domestic workers. But now it's totally changed. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of interest a lot of pressure lots of lots of lots of research on this uh, sector uh, and most importantly uh, domestic workers are mobilizing themselves uh, they are not like before uh, you know hidden uh, invisible uh, they are mobilizing themselves they have come up they they like to join organizations uh, they want to meet government they want to meet uh, all of you this is the time you know really that things can be done and, and happen and even in even in the middle east uh, and so i i i'm i'm also a optimistic uh, but uh, based on evidence I, I, I hope you share this
1: thank you well thank you so much um thank you so much to our four speakers thank you all in the room thank you to those that are following us online um this is yes an ongoing conversation. We will be coming out with uh, the roadmap we mentioned and and other documents, more studies, but also uh, ideally and you know concrete action points to take this agenda forward. Um, so stay tuned and and thanks so much for participating today. Thank you. Thank you.